the Vader 908. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I must say, I'm enjoying these Vader sessions that we have every every week on Tuesdays. It's exciting. And, you know, it comes into play where I have the chance and the opportunity of being able to bring some people onto this this show that just allows us to step into their world and witness greatness. Today is pretty special because we use the term legends, and sometimes people use this term a little bit too freely, but I got to tell you something, when it comes down to understanding legends, people that have made their mark in the field of this incredible art form, it really fits today in both counts with both father and son being legends in different areas of the music industry, which allows us to step into the world of the great Max Weinberg and Jay Weinberg. Would you please welcome them both together? All right. Hey. Tom, good to see you. Hi, Jay. Hey, Dom. Hey, Dad. Max and Jay, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I mentioned, and I say this real seriously, the term legends. I mean, you, what you guys have done from different generations. And Max, I, I got to start by saying we met many, many years ago. And what blows me away is as I followed you in all that you have done, you have committed yourself to this art form at such a high level of still being a student of the art form and driving any band that you are behind. You drive this with such a force and an energy that is clearly to see how that has been transferred to Jay. Because, Jay, when you're behind physically driving with Slipknot, the energy that is needed is absolutely incredible with the music you're playing. And Max, the shows that spring spring, Bruce's shows are like, you know, telethons. Yeah, they are on telethons. And go on for a look. It's incredibly the amount of quality music that you're giving. So I want to start by saying, Max, let's go back to the early stages. What inspired you? Who were the drummers that were in your life in the early days? And, and where did this drumming passion come from? Well, the first exposure I had to drumming and actually just being involved in rhythm was, if you can believe it, Xavier Cougat. Xavier Cougat on uh, a 15-minute uh, TV show. He was a uh, band leader, a, uh, uh, I believe a Cuban band leader, uh, who, where everybody played a drum. And he was sort of the real-life Ricardo. And... Uh, I was a kid who had a lot of nervous energy and I'd bang on the floor. And, you know, in those days, you're, you, you know, we didn't have the resources to go to movies and, and, and uh, shows and things like that. So TV was it. And there was always great musicians on TV. And my parents were very plugged into uh, watching, you know, whether it was Milton Berle or uh, like, I guess most people in those days, we're talking about the early 50s. Uh, watching the great musical act and great variety shows that were on TV. But when I heard Xavier Cougat's band, and everybody in the band had a little conga drum, like a small one, and, and he had a big one, of course. And he, uh, His wife at the time was Abby Lane, and it just really swept me away. Uh, so my father bought me this sort of little, little conga drum. It was actually a real drum, but it was miniature which I still have, actually. And uh, and I used to walk around the house playing that thing, you know, and I had pretty good rhythm, but I had a tremendous amount of energy, which I think, nervous energy, which I think I got from my mother and and my father, both. Uh, but particularly my mother had this uh, tremendously strong Russian, uh, uh, you know, stuff, uh, Belarus, actually, 
In any case, by the time, uh, I was fortunate to have two older sisters who were preteen and teenagers uh, when Elvis Presley debuted on the Ed Sullivan Show. And uh, uh, we'd actually seen him earlier that year on Milton Girl and Steve Allen. And they, uh, you, you know, when you first saw Elvis, it wasn't just Elvis. It was this whole band. And I immediately, because it was a locked off shot, I immediately went to DJ Fontana. And yeah. I can really pinpoint the moment that, well, that's what I want to do. Uh, it was a, a 56, I guess, he was five years old. And, uh, you know, you in those days, you either played sports or you didn't exist. <laughs> For me, uh, I could do something that nobody else could do. You know, I, I could sit down and I was able to play, you know, a beat kind of right away. And um, I just took to it. I didn't have any drums. <laughs> that was a problem. But seeing DJ Fontana and playing that, that drum roll in Hound Dog, that was the moment. You know, everybody has their big bang moment. I know Bruce is with Elvis on... Uh, 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 Ed Sullivan, mine with DJ uh, on those TV shows, and um, it it made me <laughs> aware of myself in a completely different way than I had been. I now I had a focus for all that nervous energy. I would, I'm sure, I'd be diagnosed today with attention deficit disorder. <laughs> um, but my mother was a teacher, and she sort of directed me into you know, into playing drums uh, uh, as a almost therapy. And actually, as it turned out now, what, 65 years later, <laughs> it is therapy. <laughs> were, there any, were there any drummers in particular other than DJ later on that you started getting involved to listen to? Well, I didn't, you know, at the time, I didn't know their name. Uh, I just, you would see them occasionally playing behind count. You only saw swing bands on TV. You know, occasionally you would see, you know, Bob Holly, uh, Ed Sullivan was the only place you could go to to see live uh, rock and roll on television. And, you know, so you would see disparate drummers. Um, you know, I didn't know their names, but, you know, you'd see Count Basie, you'd see, see Duke Ellington. This is when I was a little kid. And you'd see these guys, you know, of course, later on, I became aware of, of uh, Sonny Greer and Sonny Payne and uh, uh, the drummers who, you know, the great uh, uh, Basie drummers and anybody you would see on TV. Uh, you know, uh, what was his name? Speedy, uh, who took Sonny Payne's uh, place uh, in, uh, in Count Basie's band. So as I got older, and I wasn't at all, once the Beatles happened, I, I don't think I ever, I liked Buddy Rich. And I was, I didn't, I, and I had a Gene Krupa record, um, so of course I like that. I had a Sandy Nelson record, but I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, the big record when I was a kid was Take Five by the, uh, the Dave Brubeck Quartet. It was a hit record on the actual pop charts. Yeah. And, you know, so I listened to that, but I, I can't say that I, uh, there were a couple things that happened to me, including DJ, when I was a teenager, 14, 15, that's when I, I got exposed to Buddy Rich. And um, 
but I never went in a jazz direction. I was strictly rock and roll. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to (laughs) rock and roll all the way. And uh, my fascination with, you know, who the drummers were behind the beat, that didn't really happen until I was in my 20s. I would just see a drummer and, uh, you know, well, that guy's good. I like that style. I stole from, like everybody, I stole from everybody. And um, my style sort of, I came up in an era, and I think this is the key to what I ended up doing with my drumming career, was I came up in an era where you had to know how to cut, as they say, a show. And I became a show band drummer. Um, I learned early on that the the way that I was going to, to, you know, be able to spend time with drums was as an accompanist. Because accompanists embrace that attitude, always work. Uh, Drum solos were not going to get me a job, but the ability to keep good time, give the leaders what they wanted. So I had a wonderful drum teacher as a child named Gene Thaler, who had actually played on a hit record in the 50s. If I knew you were coming, I would have baked you a cake. (laughs) <laughs> and, and he was a local guy in, you know, Maplewood, South Orange, New Jersey, who taught drummers. And he was a wonderful, sweet guy who's a, you know, they call him a hipster now. You know, he was, I remember he was 29 when I met him. And he was like, the, pretty much other than my uncle's, the oldest person I knew. And, <laughs> you know, he taught everybody locally, but he loved drumming. He was the one who taught, who, you know, when, when he saw that I had some uh, ability uh, I, I used to be, I used to love to perform, but I used to get really uptight if anybody watched me practice. I didn't want anybody to see how the sausage was made. <laughs> and if anybody walked in on me or, so he would have me, his last lesson was six o'clock on a Friday night. And I would take the bus to his house um, and, and he lived two, two doors in from the bus stop. So it was very convenient. And then the bus took me back the other way to my, my parents' house. And uh, and I made sure that you know, no one else saw me you know, play. And I didn't want to see anybody else practice or play. I was very self-conscious. But it put me in front of an audience, and suddenly I was Mr. Show-Off. So I became a show band drummer, which meant that I played everything from you know, my version of swing to, to funk band. Anytime somebody needed a drummer. And Jay can relate to this because he was a goalie. And still is a goalie in hockey. And, you know, you always need a goalie. So you always need a drummer to keep the beat. And I realized early on when I was, you know, maybe 11 or 12, because I started working with older band mitzvah bands in those days at that age, uh, that you want to keep working, just keep giving the band leaders what they want. And ultimately, in 1974, uh, by that point, I'd been playing every kind of job you can imagine from the circus to, uh, uh, you know, strip drawings, backing comedians, stage shows, rock bands, funk bands, a little bit of everything. And I would, and I wouldn't, but rock and roll was my love. And at that point I was a little disillusioned because I really, my favorite music was basically Chuck Berry rock and roll. And in, in 1972, uh, the drummers I knew all wanted to be Billy Cobham or Tony Williams. And, you know, I love their drumming, but I could never be those guys. And I had a friend of mine who I played with quite a bit. His name is Joe Belia. 
And Joe D'Elia is an amazing musician, composer, keyboardist. And we were playing together. And he was actually the one who told me about this Bruce Springsteen audition. But he used to say to me, Matt, the, you know, because everybody was trying to be, as I said, you know, uh, uh, Harvey Mason and all these, the, the funk jazz thing. He said, Max, the best thing you do is just chop wood. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, I never forgot that. And that was like in 1971, maybe two years before I met Bruce and the band. And he said, chop wood. That's what, that's your thing, right? And I mean, I had, I had good technique. Gene Thaler told me, well, I had good technique. I had good time. I had good uh, a facility in the classic way with the 26 rudiments and the Buddy Rich book, four-way coordination, you know, but, and I would do all that. But then really all I wanted to do was, you know, sort of beat my brains in against the drum. It was my way of expressing my inner, the turmoil that you have when you're a preteen and then a teenager. And it's just so ironic that, you know, I think Jay can relate to my story. Um, uh, fortunately, by the time Jay came around 30 years ago, I was a little more calm. But, uh, you know, then when the Beatles happened, it was like, wow, I had been playing. I'd been in a Dixieland band uh, with trumpet, uh, piano, and acoustic bass. And, you know, we were doing all the Al Hurd and, and, you know, real kind of, you know, Acker Bilk and all that stuff and, you know, brushes. And, and then I saw the Beatles and I, I immediately said, oh, I got to go out and find some guitar players. And I did. And I started a band when I was in seventh grade and, and they were older, but we got really good really fast and became you know, sort of the number one young rock band in my, in the, in the county. And, uh, and I was off to the races and I kind of never looked back. Well, for sure. You have not only have you never looked back, but the influences that you had in the growing up, this is what I want people to understand. You had a real wide variety of influences that were coming into you. And that opened you up to be able to be one of the best goalies behind a drum setter that we could have ever asked for. Well, thank you. Yeah, I must, I must give my mother, Jay's grandmother, credit because she was a Broadway musical fanatic. So every Saturday afternoon until basically I was about 13 and I didn't want to go anymore, which was a mistake. But we went to a Broadway show and she'd wait in line for the cheap seats and we'd go to a Broadway show. So in those days, you had 90 musicians playing in the pit. You might have, you know, real orchestra. So you had a guy just playing timpanis, a guy playing cymbals, a guy playing drum set or snare drum. And the, the pageantry of it and yeah. the, the idea that the drums are in service to something else, that made a big impression on me, actually. That actually is pretty powerful. You know, Jay, it's kind of interesting. When I had met your dad and your mom many, many years ago, they talked about how when you were younger, they only played classical music for you. And I thought that was so, so powerful because that's what my wife and I did to our children. We, we just kind of embodied them in classical music when they were sleeping, when they were younger. So going back to your, so now you have your dad who's at this incredible force in the music industry and a fantastic drummer, a fantastic musician. This is now the influence of you growing up. Where did that start for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, it's true. The The first music that I really ever studied without knowing I was like studying it was classical music until I was like five years old. That's all I heard. I hadn't heard, uh, you know, guitar driven music or drum driven music at all. It was all classical. And I'm thankful for that because I think that kind of 
like shaped how I would then later interpret those those things, those guitar driven bands or whatever. Um, so once uh, once I was five years old, if I remember correctly, and Dad, you might be able to correct me here if I'm wrong. Uh, Pete Townsend came on the Conan program when I was about five years old, and you know, the Who being legends, my my mom and dad were like, oh well, you know, we should we should bring the kids in and we should you know show them Pete Townsend whatever, and and my mom was like, yeah, well they're not they're not gonna care who Pete Townsend is because they don't know the Who, they don't know any of, any of his music, they're you know. All they've heard is classical music so that was the point where they started to introduce um the who and the beatles and the rolling stones and the band and bob dylan and stuff into kind of our uh, our musical diet so to speak and that was revolutionary for me because now i'm hearing all these different sounds that i had never heard before i'm now turned on to you know keith moon for the first time I'm turned on to Char uh you know I'm turned on to Charlie for the first time like all all this stuff is now informing informing this new way that I'm hearing music um so yeah but it, it all started with classical music and I find you know I think people have done like studies that there are certain ways of interpreting music that people who listen to classical music early on in their in their childhood it really translates to them becoming like heavy metal musicians in certain ways. I think there are ways that like those, I don't know, the ways of thinking about music or arrangements or the complexities of, of certain things that there's kind of a, a hidden link between the two. And, and I think that that could be true. Um, and maybe not just heavy metal, maybe rock and roll in general. Uh, but I find that an early appreciation for, for classical music and really getting down to, you know, to roots of like melody and composition and stuff without knowing that you're studying music in that way. Like it's a, it's a, it was a good way for me to kind of, um, yeah, like study without even realizing that I was, you know? Well, very powerful. When you think about just, listen, this is the a father and son team in the drumming community. You guys, this is so rare. And that's why I say both of you as legends, because you really have kind of moved forward this incredible momentum of, of drumming passed down to another generation. Max, you have had so many, uh, such a wide variety of different musical situations that you currently play in. Going back to Bruce's dates, you're playing Bruce's dates, you're rehearsing, you're putting these long shows on. What kind of physical, you know, state do you need to be in to just kind of, you know, rehearse and play and be on tour? I mean, this takes a whole nother mental and physical workout. Yeah, we, we usually play in four hour sets at very high intensity. And I could tell you a lot of stories about that, but I can tell you that, uh, it, you know, bands, band bands are a difficult proposition. What's so wonderful about Bruce and the E Street Band is that we're like a flying wedge, you know, with Bruce at the point. Uh, and it's an interesting band to play with because everybody plays with Bruce. I don't think, uh, for example, Gary Talon and I, our bass player, have ever really had a conversation about let's lock in together. <laughs> you know, we just do. And the physicality is very important. And Bruce's statement, way back when I first met him 46 years ago, we, we take our fun very seriously. Yeah. And that really struck me. We take our fun seriously because uh, it was no joke. This wasn't a, you know, although we could jam, this wasn't a jam scene. Although we could play improvisation, we were a show band. 
And uh, it was intense. And when you're in your 20s and doing it, you know, in your 20s, you can stay up for three days and not sleep and, you know, no problem. You get to in the sixth and seventh decade, you really have to, you know, uh, take care of yourself all year round. We were very fortunate that the, in our band, we, we didn't, we were always moving so fast. We would never stay in a town after uh, the show. We would get back on the bus or van, whatever, and we would drive to the next town. And I believe that that kept everybody pretty uh, uh, pretty much away from the sort of 70s and early 80s rock scene, if you will. Um, and frankly, you were so, you know, I never had a trouble sleeping because you played for four hours, you know, at that intensity level. And, and, and on the drums, and Jay can attest to it, the drummer in the East Street Band doesn't stop because we do these long holding endings and I have to do a drum solo through that. So you really don't stop. And uh, it hurts. Every every part of your body is aching. Every muscle, every joint, your head, you're hot, you're sweaty, and it feels fantastic. <laughs> That's the really important thing is that when you get like that, you you're there, you're there. And I know how to get there. And I, you know, done thousands of shows. Someone told me I was at NBC the other day and someone told me that I did something around 4,000 TV shows uh, on the late night programs. And that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of TV. It's a lot of hours of TV. Um, uh, and you know, like yeah, I don't even remember how many concerts I've done um, in different situations. I never really played. I never really was the session guy, so I never really played on. I mean, I played on a few albums, but you know, I never really held out that shingle to. Work. I basically had to to my whole adult playing career two jobs, apart from the things I do when I'm not working with Bruce or when I was on TV. I did have an abundance of uh, good fortune in, in being able to be on the TV show and tour with Bruce and be able to take out uh, Jay and his sister, Allie, and of course my wife Becky uh, with us when we go to Europe. And one of the things that Becky and I did with Jay and Allie was we took them to every kind of show you could imagine, everything. Broadway shows, classical concerts. Uh, I remember taking Jay to pick up, this is an important story because <laughs> I remember this, uh, my wife Becky and my daughter Allie went to see Maurizio Pollini, who's an incredible uh, world-class pianist at Carnegie Hall. And we were going to go pick them up. And I had Jay, and he was about four years old. So I had him by the hand, and we're walking in Carnegie Hall during the concert. And suddenly, he recognized the song that Pollini was playing. And, you know, I, I, the whole their whole childhood, I was... You know, I'd leave home, I'd take them to school, and then I'd go to New York and I'd work all day. I didn't play music at home. And they only knew me as, you know, Bruce, they knew Bruce basically as Evan's father, you know, because Bruce is all this time at the same age. So, you know, I was a TV guy, but he recognized this classical tune. And Becky and I got such a thrill out of that. So as he says, you know, that was a really important input. But then when the Who came around, my, one of my earliest memories of Jay was taking him to see Quadrophenia, and we were in the fourth row center. And I look over, and he's, I don't know, five or six maybe, and he's standing on top of the chair, just completely rocking out. 
and Billy Idol was in that show. So it became a thing when, you know, wanted to get into music that he would take the bus up to New York or a train and I'd meet him and we'd have dinner. Then we'd go to a show and, and with, which coincided with his burgeoning interest in really analyzing. Uh, you know, if I can brag on Jay for a second, I'd be playing a concert in some stadium in Europe, and Jay would be over at stage left behind the monitor board, just sitting there, sort of this, analyzing everything that was going on. Like, which, if you know him, that's exactly him. He's, he's, he's figuring out every deep level, everything we're doing, not just the drums, but could recite to you every moment of the four-hour show. It was an incredible intake of, of, you know, you're seeing, you really are, you know, when you're that close, you're on the stage. Yeah. And, you know, we take no prisoners. <laughs> you know, we just we go for it. And, well, and if, uh, if, I can, if I can even add to that, you know, hmm. that was the education that I, again, like not knowing I'm learning, not knowing I'm, I'm studying at the time. But people would ask me, you know, when I when I eventually started playing with them, when when we had this interesting, you know, period of time where I was covering for my dad, uh, they would ask me like, "How long did it take you to prepare for doing this tour?" I was like, "It took me ten years of <laughs> watching them every night because they got they started touring again when I was nine years old, and I started playing with them when I was about eighteen, and so it took me." you know, almost like nine, 10 years of studying and watching them play what they did to the point where even though I wasn't behind the drum set, I was taking it all in. And then, you know, that had to come of use at a certain point where Bruce would call out a song that I've never sat down at a drum set to play before, but he would just call out a song randomly. And thank God I had been watching the band for 10 years because I can you know, pick it up based on muscle memory from having seen them play that song, you know, hundreds of times. Um, so that's just kind of a little, you know, anecdote for that. Well, you let's, know, if, let's I talk about if I can jump in, you know, you don't get the play with the East Street Band because your name happens to be the same as one of the musicians. You only, I mean, it was, it was a great story, but you have to be able to handle the job. And... Yeah. I can I can tell you, people say, well, you must have worked with Jay, you must have taught him. The only thing, he did it completely on his own, learning how to play the drums. I think his hockey experience and the discipline that took, getting up at three in the morning for years and years, uh, the discipline that developed. You know, he wanted to be a musician, and he taught himself. The only thing I said, uh, Jay, you'll remember this, was don't hold the sticks tightly. You know, keep them loose so you don't develop tendonitis like I did when I was younger and, and he did do that. And he completely taught himself literally in a, in an unheated hot as hell old outbuilding we had on our property. And, and, you know, uh, he kept himself warm in the winter by playing. He sweated death in the summer, did it, you know, by himself and then would go pick a pair of drumsticks and go around and sit in the bands. So, you know, uh, one day I went up there and I guess he'd been doing it about a year, just going, oh, he started just going, boom, just getting the feel of it. And then he had this ability to play this poly, polyrhythmic, very, very challenging music that I I couldn't even understand how to make sense of it, you know, listening to it, let alone play it. So whatever influence I had, he took that and all the other drummers. And of course he would get the, 
you know, was, he met his heroes, which, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to be in the position to be able to introduce him to people who we both admired. I remember taking him to uh, see uh, 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 Billy Cobham and, uh, and Roy Haynes. We went down to the uh, old uh, Village Vanguard, and uh, Jay was about 14. I said, you got to see Roy Haynes. You know, he's one of the, you know, they talk about legends. Well, you know, that's a legend. And then I put him the picture of Roy Haynes playing with Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie and Carly Parker. That's that guy. And, uh, you know, he was like 89 years old at the time. Just incredible. So it was a wonderful bonding experience for us. But, Jay, I never saw anybody both work as hard in school and then come back, do the homework, and then go and spend six hours practicing the drums, uh, on the drums, and, and figuring out his own way of getting into it. So I really had nothing to do with it other than uh, happy to be a drummer myself, you know? Uh, well, I started, I started with punk rock and heavy metal because it was fast, and then I'd warm up because I was playing in February. I started learning how to play drums in January, February, and I started with Ramon's records to warm up. <laughs> You know, we had a discussion, his mother and I, about, you know, should we, like, give him a space heater or something? I said, no, this is good. If he plays outside in New Jersey winters with no heat, he'll, he'll figure, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be a, you know, a toughening up thing. Not that he needed it, because he's still got the marks on his chest from puck hitting him. But I, I do think the, the, the hockey, the, the music that we injected, particularly my wife with all sorts of you know, from Celtic music to classical to Renaissance uh, uh, and Led Zeppelin, you know, Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, uh, and whatever they wanted to listen to. And, you know, uh, uh, and what, what do you want to see? I, I want to go to Metallica. I'd never been to a Metallica show. I loved it. Everything he turned me on to, I'd like to go see, you know, taking back Tuesday, was it, or Thursday? You know, and a lot of these bands were, you know, uh, on on the Conan show, so it was a great opportunity to come in, you know, and see you two rehearse, and uh, uh, you know, meet Larry and, and 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 talk drums. I have a picture of Jeff Beck giving a eight year old Jay a guitar lesson at backstage. Jeff, he he was he was playing with someone. I'm not sure he was playing with, but you know, Jake had because Jeff Beck was my wife Becky's favorite guitar player, and, and Jimmy Page, and uh, so. Uh, you know, Jay was at that point expressing an interest in guitar and bass. And, you know, can play that stuff, but then the drums just took off. Well, and that was cool when we when when I would start to get into like punk rock and stuff when I was an early teenager and not yet even playing drums at the time. But uh, there would be, uh, you know, having my dad at the Conan show. I would get to see like a month in advance, he would bring home a calendar of all the musical guests that were like booked through that month. And um, and I would get to look at that and be like, oh my God, the used are gonna come on, you know, the TV show. And and so I would I would end up taking the train from where we lived in New Jersey up to New York, head over to the Conan studio and meet up with my dad, watch, you know, a band that I was I was super into or who I had just discovered, and they were on tour, they come and play on the Conan program. And then we would oftentimes see them play at, you know, Irving Plaza or Roseland Ballroom or something like that later that night. And we just kept doing that through like my adolescence and my early teenage years was that was a way that we, you know, 
we spent a lot of time together just doing that. And we didn't, again, we didn't realize that we were like, cause I hadn't started playing drums at that point either. It was just for the love of music and for the love of, you know, these bands that I was getting turned on to and turning him onto them as well. Like he, you know, it, I think, I, I don't want to speak for you, but like, I think that kind of revitalized your relationship with like new rock and roll bands and stuff like that. So that was like an incredible experience to get to do that in my early teenage years. But how powerful that was. Listen, my three boys educate me on a lot of these new bands that are out there. So it's great to be able to be the fact that Max is that open-minded to hear this. But listen, Jay, you went to the best university. You went to Max Weinberg U. Let me tell you something. <laughs> when you're hearing all these different musicians play and you're being exposed to this, aside from the fact of just hearing that great music, but then being exposed to traveling and the cultures of the world to, being have, to have that opportunity. This is an incredible you know, skill that is cannot be taught in any university. It has to be the experience of hitting the road, following what your parents are doing, experiencing all these different, totally different types of musical experiences. And Max, what you've done is you've created this incredible infestation of knowledge into a child that is opening it up which only can be, you know, this eruption in time as we continue to follow Jay's career. Really, well, from, really fantastic. From my vantage point, it's great because both of our children, uh, uh, what they do professionally is one actually small facet. It's so important to what they do. But in terms of literature and art and the uh, interest they have, their readers, uh, you know, Jay took four years of Latin. Uh, so it's wonderful to see the growth of a young man, of a young woman into adulthood and become formidable citizens uh, and also fantastic performers. And, you know, uh, Jay's sister played with him. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a ton of stories about that. One of my favorites is, so, you know, we were booked to play the Super Bowl and I was doing the TV show, so we were working in New York. And uh, Bruce came in one day, and Jay, of course, knows the story, with uh, a piece of scrap paper. And uh, he said, get, uh, please give this to Jay uh, and tell him to get started. And it was about 150 songs to start <laughs> looking, right? And uh, so I gave it to Jay. And Jay started working. You know, I was going to the senior in high school, I guess. Started learning it, uh, the songs. And one day, I, on a weekend, I went up, and yeah, I could hear the drums in the bar. I went up there and, you know, I'm watching him and I'm looking at him and I say, well, OK, that's not how I played that song. And, uh, and I realized, and he made me realize right away that I have to figure this out for myself. You're not going to be there. I have to, and so I realized it was kind of like teaching your kids to drive, right? But we're eating dinner later that night and we're sitting there and, and uh, uh, Jay says something about, well, it's really interesting how you know, the middle of, he'll remember this story, the middle of Born to Run uh, has this uh, bar in it, the solo. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, it's not a, it's nine bars. It's not eight bars. I said, Jay, I've been playing that song for 35 years. <laughs> eight bars. And, you know, Jay's, his avocation as a little kid was playing chess, serious chess. So he immediately thrust his hand out how much you want to bet? <laughs> right, I said, Jay, look, uh, I hate to take your money. I've been playing that song for 35 years. It's middle. It's, you know, it's, it's a sax solo. So we listened to it and we're counting. One, two, three, four, two. 
Jay was right. It was nine bars. I lost the bet, right? And I I don't think I've ever won an argument, although we don't argue, but uh, Jay's mind is so analytical. But he presents you with uh, data points leading to a conclusion. So I... <laughs> Anyway, that, was my, that was my first ten dollars I ever made as a musician. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a professional. That point, but the uh, one of the things I did do was I said he was about to go off on tour uh, with Bruce, and um, I said, "Jay, I'm going to give you an album. Listen to this, digest it, internalize it. It's got everything on this album that you're ever going to need to know about playing with Bruce." And it was Sam and Dave's greatest hit. Nice. And uh, he listened to it and he, he internalized it. And there's a song that we very rarely play called Back in My Arms. We recorded it in one take back in, in 95 and we hope we ever play it. But, um, and, it's, and it's very much in the uh, Al Jackson, Sam and Dave, soul reunion genre. And they didn't rehearse it. So they're playing in wherever it was in Europe. And Bruce called out the song, and Jay never played the song. But I never heard. I had never heard of the song. He never, I had never, never heard, heard of it. Played it. He never heard of the song. And of course, you know, you're, you're in front of sixty thousand people. You don't want egg on your face. And I think Steve and Gary kind of they knew I gave him Sam and Dave's greatest hits, and they both I think said Sam and Dave, Sam and Dave. So. He played it, and the song's got a lot of dynamics and a lot of accents. Hit me, boom, hit me, you know. And you got to really pay attention. So a couple of years later, we're on board. We played the song. And we were uh, going to the next uh, job. Uh, we're all sort of hanging out, and uh, 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 we played it that night. And Bruce was saying, oh, I really did that night. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, you know, because we don't play it that often. And I caught all the accents. And he goes, you know, Bruce said, the best we ever played that, bar, bar none, the best we ever played that was, I think it was Stockholm in, in 2009. And I realized, and I said, uh, well, that wasn't me on the drums that night. <laughs> it was Jay playing it, but one than I need played it. And he looked, he goes, oh, that was Jay. Uh, oh, mighty one, he kicked your ass. <laughs> you know, it... it you want that as a father. As a drummer, it's a little bittersweet, but father, <laughs> nothing better than your child doing something that you do better. Well, and it's a it's a really unique like kind of relationship that we've been able to foster, you know, into my late teens and early twenties and stuff. That that we had that relationship where we both played in the same band at the same time. Like we we when we got to talking about it, we were thinking like, I don't know if anybody else could say that they did that. Like a father son duo that both shared the duties of playing drums in the same band at the same time on the same tour it was very unique and, and like you said dom like going to max weinberg university uh that really was like like he kind of said like I, I never took a drum lesson in my life I, I i pretty much um wanted to learn i wanted to find out what i really loved about the drums for myself um because i had some like guitar teachers that that I, I didn't, I, it made it feel like I was going to school and I didn't want to go to school after school. So I really wanted to find out what I loved about drums just by doing it. So I wanted to play along to my Ramones records and my Metallica records and so on and so forth. But 
what I really learned and what I feel was completely like invaluable was uh, everything else about music, like being, you know, being a drummer who plays in a band every single night, like the music almost feels like that much of it. And the rest of it is like, it's all about just tenacity and application and endurance and not just like physical endurance through playing the music, but uh, endurance to, you know, see an artistic vision through with the people that you're collaborating with. And, um, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of fortitude to really like make all those things fire on all cylinders. And it takes the right combination of people takes the right combination of attitudes. And so I got to learn that at a really young age by seeing them do it night in and night out. And that was like the real learning was, um, was again, like, yeah, seeing them to me, the, you know, the baddest band in the land, the, you know, the real tenacious E street band watching them do what they did for four hours a night. Like, I mean, to this day, you don't see bands doing that. They're, they're in a, a league of their own. So, um, you know, to have that education of seeing that happen every night that it's like, there's no partying here. There's no, you know, it, it takes so much focus to deliver on your vision and, you know, what Bruce and the E Street Band have done, you know, for decades has been, has been just like flawlessly executing a certain vision. And so that's what I really took away uh, from that experience. And then, you know, of course now applying that to Slipknot, it's like a vision that I I've come to understand and was a fan when I was very young, um, knew the band inside and out, knew the songs like the back of my hand, um, knew the vision of the band and the direction that the band was going. Um, it takes that application and tenacity of just like every day you wake up and you gotta, you gotta bash down the door. And so that's kind of, that was the best lesson that I ever got from Max Weinberg university. <laughs> well, in this university, what's amazing is the mental focus, the discipline that you have that was passed down from your dad. And I'm sure your, your whole family has this because you mentioned Ali. Ali's extremely articulate and intelligent and brilliant in her own right and what it is. So with this here, that focus and that vision, that's really a very, very powerful tool. Now, you mentioned you didn't study lessons formally. I beg to differ. You studied drumming lessons every freaking day. Every day you were exposed to high, powerful drumming and music at such a high level. Every day, from rehearsals to what you witnessed with your dad. So this is incredible. And then on top of that, your dad puts together a book that I feel it's a required learning with all of my students. I've got thousands of students globally. The Big Beat, when he sat down and pulled in information from Ringo and Dino Donnelly and Levon Helm and Dave Clark and Bernard Purdy. This is the mind of great, great drummers that he then collectively put this together. So your dad's focus was passed on through you. You didn't even realize it was yeah, happening. It's, yeah, it's one of those things. It's just, it, it, it could be just, you know, that's our way of doing it. I, I guess that's just, re, it's, it's just reality. It's nature for, for how, you know, maybe the way I was raised. I don't know. It, it, yes, it's completely unconscious, that aspect of it, for sure. That's why you say know, something. Dom, you know, we admire you uh, to such a degree because uh, uh, along with this show, you're known as the great educator in the tradition of, uh, uh, you know, Gladstone and uh, uh, Jim Chapin, who have this love of the instrument and the ability to play, but 
also have the ability to transmit the, the uh, techniques and the feelings to your students wherever they are. I mean, to be known uh, is something that I always, really, I never really did that. And I always admired your uh, title of, you know, the world's greatest clinician, because that's, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do to, you know, to be both entertaining and, um, <clears throat> and instructive. Uh, on something that's so esoteric, you know, it's architecture. Uh, drumming is architecture, and to get that, and it's what my other love is, as Jay knows, architecture. And I try to approach it that way. But um, from your clinics, I've, I've, which I've attended, you know, I say, wow, this guy is blowing my mind. You know, uh, I think if you can maintain, be seventy soon, if you can maintain the feeling, like when I. I'll be on YouTube and, you know, I have a friend of mine who sent me obscure Buddy Rich video and I'll get into these long Buddy Rich uh, uh, YouTube things and uh, just watching. And if you can maintain the enthusiasm to the epitome of the instrument and like keep, you know, continually getting blown away by what other people are doing. In my case, also my son Jay, I sat behind him when he was playing and it's just so impressive. I mean, it's not that he's my son. It, it, it could be anybody playing. To, yeah. to watch up close, that is that is quite amazing, I must say. Yeah, it's not, it's not something I could ever do. You know, that's well, for I, sure. I use both of you as examples. When I'm here in my studio teaching and I'm, I'm, I'm explaining certain things, when somebody wants to groove, they have to study Max Weinberg. They have to. I tell this, there's, there's no question. You got to study Max. And you got to go back and study a variety of different things. And not only what you've done with Springsteen, but I mean, you talk about, about you know, anyone from, I had a list here of, you know, Meatloaf and Air Supply and Carol King and Southside Johnny and Bonnie Tyler. You've had such a wide variety of, of, of experience that you have. When they hear you groove, that's the pocket. That's the pocket that we're trying to deliver. Now, when somebody wants to talk about heavier playing and metal and that level of intensity, I got to tell him, you got to go study what Jay is doing, because if you want that level, if you can combine that pocket with that level of intensity and understand the techniques and facility to get you there, you're going to have success at a high level. So it's the combination of what you both deliver that really creates this Weinberg magic. Well, and if I may, if I may add to that, uh, one of the hugest lessons that I learned from my dad that I think is so applicable to every style of music is really just like the invisible things that you might, as a first level listener to, to certain aspects of music, you might not be completely attuned to, but the invisible things that are happening on the drum set are, are so, are almost as, they're pretty much as important as the things that you are hearing. And what I mean by that is kind of like that invisible swing is a lot of, uh, to me, that's like the most impactful thing, especially when you translate that into like over distorted guitars and heavy tones and, and everything like that. So much of the weight of of what you're trying to, you know, with what we do, you're conveying a lot of impact and you're conveying a lot of, um, you know, it's just heavy brute force a lot of the time. But what gives it an extra, that extra oomph and emotion is so much of that like invisible swing that's in your meter, that's in the breath of the song. You know, yeah, we're playing like, a million notes a minute uh in some instances but you also have to balance that with like you you don't want to sound like a train that's going completely off the rails you want to sound like you're a train that's almost about to completely go off the rails 
but learning what I did from, you know, learning about pocket and learning, you know, from my dad and from a lot of drummers that he had turned me on to, and then applying that to like, you know, how I would listen to a Slayer record. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many things in the layers of like, beyond what I'm actually hearing in between the notes, the things that are happening is like just as important. And that breath and that the air between the guys in the room and, and how you're, you know, you're filling it with, like I said, like that invisible swing. I didn't notice that as like a first level listener of like punk and hardcore and metal. But then once you, once you find that, cause I think when you're a, a teenager, like I was, I just wanted to go as, as fast as I could, you know, as hard as I could. And, and that, that's what I got my energy out with. But then you study the music and then you want to study what makes this music so impactful and I feel like it's a drummer's responsibility. You're holding it all together, really. And and with your meter, if you're if you're dancing around all these guys, the music isn't going to have that emotion and that impact. And that is that kind of unspoken air between you and the other guys. And so that was something that I really learned was like, yeah, you want to be frenetic, you want to be crazy, you want to play fast and, and this and that. But more importantly, you want to be tight. And that was the thing that I learned with Bruce and the band was that it's like, this isn't overly, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's complex to a degree that it's like, you know, you got to play it right and you have to deliver on a certain tone of the music or a certain emotion of the music, which is, is complicated. But, uh, but, it, but it's more about like, you want to all be playing together and, when when I then kind of took that experience of playing with Bruce and the band and then apply that to a band like Slipknot, um, it's the same, you know, at the end of the day, it's just music. You know, it's not, you, you break down the walls of like, well, this is a genre and this is a different genre. You break all that down and you're just playing music. You want to tap into that emotion. And when you want to, you know, I, I feel like, you know, Bruce and the E Street Band, that music has a certain emotion. Slipknot, this music has a certain emotion. And to dial into that and bring everybody in the band and you're all together on the same page, you just want to, you know, to me, it's like I want to sock the audience as hard as I can, Absolutely. you know, with, with the power and emotion and weight that we're trying to convey. And, you know, when you're a powerful, tight unit as a band, like my dad had said, you're in servitude to a greater thing that's greater than all the individuals on stage you're in servitude to the music and when that music comes off the stage out of the speakers and hits the crowd you want it to have the most impact possible and so that was like the lesson that i took and i'll always take with me from what i learned watching them and then playing with them was that responsibility for you know kind of like being a responsible drummer you know you're responsible for helping this band be tight, be uh, emotive and stuff. And so, so that's kind of like, forget where that went, but, or where that was coming from, but I talked for a while. So. Point well taken, point well taken. <laughs> and here's interesting. I make students listen to a letter to you, Bruce's latest album. Then I make them listen to, we are not your kind, Slipknot's latest album. And I tell them, what are you going to find in the similarities of those two recordings and those two albums? And it comes down to the pocket. The pocket is clear and the pocket delivers the message. And that's out of the Weinberg family tree of pocket. This is really deep at that level. Now, I got to ask you one quick question about, about Vader. We're here for Vader. Max, you yeah. play a Vader 5A? Uh, it, well, it's a combination. It's a, 
it's a combination of a 5A and a little bit of a, it's a little thicker than that, uh, but it's very light. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I don't have them sh uh, sort of shellacked. They're raw. And I like that because uh, I very rarely break sticks. And Vader doesn't break. I, I, you know, there's my name and my, my little scribble. But uh, <laughs> they're very, very consistent in the weight. And they, I do a lot of cross stick stuff. And there's a spot on my Vader sticks where it is the spot. And I've gotten very good at, at hitting that spot. It's not too short on the on the uh, uh, stick or the drum. It's just right. Uh, but also, I like it when the drumsticks shred a little bit. Yeah. You know, they get a little, whether they absorb water or whatever they do, but they'll, you know, I start to shred them. And it's almost like a, a very tough blast stick. And I'll, you know, I'll play with that until maybe they will break or I'll just toss it aside and get another stick, you know. Uh, but I think it's my, <laughs> I think it was my childhood where, you know, don't break these sticks because you're not getting another stick. <laughs> and now I've got sticks wherever I want, but I make them last, man. Let me tell you, I make that because, you know, I make those sticks last. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, um, as a father, I can say it's just an incredible thrill to see where Jay has taken his career, the hard work that went into it. Believe me, the hard work physically, mentally, musically. And as a drummer, I really admire the stuff he pulls off. I mean, I'll look at something, I'll say, that's a Buddy Rich flick. That's a little Buddy Rich thing between the ride cymbal and the snare drum. And, uh, you know, Buddy is, uh, I think he's, you know, everybody's godhead, so to speak. Uh, never anybody who amalgamated a, a, a drumming career like he did. And I uh, was pleased to call him a friend and, and just, you know, saw him probably 50 times. Uh, and uh, he was very, very nice to me always. Uh, I was pleased to have been asked to write the intro to the definitive biography of yeah. him. Um, what, you know, my, my, my point was, and I, I guess I'll, I'll leave you with this thought, what made Buddy Rich great? And you know what? Uh, that was my question to myself. It wasn't his speed. It wasn't his dynamics. It wasn't his permutations and combinations in drumming. What I came up with, what, what, what made Buddy Rich great was his perseverance. Because here he was, a watchdog novelty act when he was 14. Before he ever became a serious drummer, he just never, ever gave up. And he played his music to the day he died the way he wanted to play it, despite everything. And uh, I think that's what made him great. You know, he was 69. He was my age when he passed. And I saw the last club day he played. And um, John Hendricks, the great composer and singer, Hendricks, Hendricks, and Hendricks, Lambert, and Roth, came up and sat in. Buddy, he waved off the horn section, and he just did about a half hour. It was at the Blue Note in New York. Just a half hour of him, uh, piano and bass, playing behind John Hendricks. And you could tell that whether it was a big swing and big bang or just a trio, it was just the epitome of the instrument. And uh, you got to admire that. And I see a little bit of that in, in every drummer that, that impresses me. I see the same kind of thing, that desire to be great, to do their thing 
as JFK said, along lines of excellence. I think you can do that uh, all the time. You have a shot at having some sort of longevity. Well, I'll tell you, Max, your dedication and your humility and your desire to constantly learn and your desire to, I love that word, that perseverance, that you just keep on going. And with all the different bands, the big band you had, the, the jukebox band, all these different things that you're doing, you're plowing straight ahead and delivering great music all the time. And as you are plowing straight ahead, you're pulling Jay to even a higher level because as you have as a, as a proud father... Jay, you have pushed this to a whole nother level of what you're doing, which is totally shifting and raising the bar of the drumming community. That, to me, is where the magic is. Let me tell you something. There's a book that you guys have to write. There's never been a father and son book. There's stories. There's information. There's documented yeah. stuff. You guys have absolutely had to do this here. You mentioned about the one-of-a-kind book, HudsonMusic.com. That's where you wrote the, the yeah. beginning part of the book about Buddy. Fantastic book. But there's a book that you guys have to write. Listen, Jay, your dad did it already in the first book that he put out. So now you just got to work with him a little bit more. Let's get yeah. this out. Let's wow. let people feel the story and see the torch has been passed, but the the flame with both of you is still burning as high as it can. Uh, Dom, you've got me inspired. I'm, I'm down to do it. If Dad, if you're down to do it, yeah, I think, Dom, you, you can have it. You heard it here first. Don, thank you for the idea. And, uh, uh, this has been a pleasant <laughs> afternoon. Uh, you know, uh, uh, with uh, the uh, uh, pandemic, we don't get to see each other very often. So it's nice to uh, you know, uh, talk about these types of things because it's been quite a journey. It continues. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, a life of music and our case drums. Uh, it's uh, sort of like the story of, uh, you know, a day of fishing is better than almost anything else. And, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, I can remember, you know, when I didn't have a drum set and wanted to get a drum set and I never lost that feeling, you know, now I have a drum set. <laughs> <laughs> and so does Jay. Jay's got a lot of drum sets. Right. <laughs> well, well, I know many. Thank you, Dom. Thank you, Vader, for all yeah, your support. You. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I just got a note to, uh, believe it or not, I'm going to the dentist. All right. <laughs> well, Max, at some point, if we can do a part two at some point, we'll have Chad Brandolini from Vader contact you. If we can do a part two, there's so much more to talk about. Go there, have them look at your teeth, man. Do your thing. Thank you so much. Yeah, you hang on because I want to run some more things by you about your model sick. Sure. But, Max, thank you so much. Stay well. Thank have Dom. the best holiday season and stay safe. Well, thank you, Dom. Have a great holiday. Wonderful to see you and talk to you. As always, Jay, I love you. Love you, Dad. You kick ass on the drums and you kick my ass on the drums. <laughs> Likewise. And that's what father always wants to see. And not only that, as I said, he's a totally... Uh, wonderful grown-up citizen, and uh, that's the greatest joy of all. So I'm signing off. Uh, I will see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Jay, you know, listen, your dad is such a prince of a person, man. He really is. And I've known him for many, many years, and he's always been great. He's always been a great guy. He's always played great. He, I mean, he's just got so much that he has in the leadership of our art form. 
And but you really have carried this torch really, really well. And, and, and you are lightening up this flame to even a higher level. But let's talk about your model 908, mm -hmm. your Vader 908. You designed it. What, what, what went into this? Yeah, it was an exciting process that took a while, um, but it was it was daunting to think about, you know, what would I do if I were to, you know, have a unique take on a on a stick that I love. You know, there are there are models of sticks. I started playing Vader pretty much right when I started playing drums. Um, so that it was always, uh, you know, whether it was the Vader 5B or Power 5B, uh, you know, things along those lines. It always felt most comfortable in my hand. Uh, but I always wanted to try, I was always trying different things. If I was going to try like a plastic tip or a wood tip, a barrel tip, an acorn shaped tip, I was always kind of experimenting. And then uh, once I started, you know, playing more consistently, just like fast, hard music, um, I fell into a groove of like, I really liked the XD Punisher model. I, I used that for a number of years. And then I, I took that experience of playing that for a couple of years. I wanted something a little bit more light and airy, but gave me the, still the same impact. And I found that in the Universal model, which I played for... Um, I think when I joined Slipknot, I was still playing the the Punisher model, but uh, but then I started playing the Universal once we started playing shows. Um, but then after after a number of years playing with the Universal model, I still had kind of like the idea. If I closed my eyes and really wanted the um, a certain feel, I wanted to make slight adjustments to what I felt was like it would maintain the. Uh, like the hand feel it would it would feel kind of the same i like the weight and the uh like the thickness of the drumstick in my hand i didn't necessarily want to change that aspect of it but i wanted i wanted something and I, it took a lot of speaking with chad and a lot of research and development a lot of different prototypes over probably about like two years um of i wanted it to be a little more a little more bouncy in a way um because especially especially with like Slipknot's music, my snare drum is tuned very high. Uh, my ride cymbal is very pingy. And I wanted to kind of amplify uh, and like kind of suit what I was going for, particularly with those things. But um, something that would, that would amplify almost like the reaction that I would feel from my ride cymbal, from my snare, that I would get that, uh, that a little bit more of a rebound. And... Uh, again like so much of our music is like just pounding out aggression you know big notes got to make a lot of impact all at once but also yeah. there is finesse there is uh intricacy there is speed and stuff so i wanted i wanted something that um after toying around with a bunch of different sticks i wanted to come up with something that was a little bit of my own spin on what i was considering like these classic models so in that we lengthen the stick a little bit, uh, which I feel has this like really great throw, but the, and, and I really loved the barrel tip. Um, that was something that I had experienced with the, uh, the Punisher. And I remember doing a session years ago where I did like a, I did a hearing test where I play the same part just with different stick tips. So it was like a, a stick that had a barrel tip, uh, you know, wood barrel tip. And I would just kind of isolate on the snare drum. And, and I really, uh, after trying like acorn tip and a plastic tip, the barrel tip is what impressed me the most. It had the most snap to yeah. the snare that I really liked. And, um, and so I stuck with that. And that's what led me from the Punisher to then the Universal. So I wanted to keep that, that barrel tip there, but I wanted a little bit, uh, a little bit more drastic of a taper. 
so it gave me that that bounciness on the ride especially when you're doing like really fast 16th note you know blast beats on your ride and snare drum you really want to feel like you're you know like you're a hummingbird just humming along all those notes and that i felt like the the 908 um which i named after you know i was born on september 8th uh, 908 happens to be the area code of where I was born in New, in New Jersey. So that was kind of like, that was where we came up with the 908. And, uh, and so this stick to me, it doesn't sacrifice any of the power because I need so much of that to play our music, yeah. but it just, um, it kind of increases the saturation that you're feeling with, you know, the quickness and you hear it in a quick Tom roll across my three toms that I have up top, or it, you know, it gives me that definition and crack on my snare drum, but doesn't sacrifice any of the body or the rim shot. And it, you know, cause I'm, I'm rim shotting all night. Um, and I don't feel like I'm, you know, it, it's, it's still a hefty enough stick to where I feel like I'm getting a lot of body and attack. Um, and I'm not going to just blow through this, uh, this stick. Like my dad just said, they, they're very durable. Um, and I need that playing the music that we do, but I feel like with the 908, we really struck this balance. That's pretty magical to me where it's, you know, I mean, I'm so fortunate and thankful to have, you know, my relationship with Vader. My first endorsement ever um, was when Chad approached me uh, at the NAMM show in 2010. Um, and so I'm so thankful for my relationship with Vader where we were, you know, able to develop this new stick and, um, and provide it for anyone who's seeking an alternative to um, maybe these, you know, these still amazing classic drumsticks like the 5B, the Power 5B, the Punisher, the Universal model, all sticks that I really love. But I feel like this is like a sharpened version of what I had in my head um, that is really exciting to then provide it to anybody who's uh, looking for, you know, just a, a little bit of a different take on those classic stick models. Well, it's amazing because people that are watching now are huge fans of the stick aside from being huge fans of yourself and your dad but uh, they're into it they're into the fact that the stick works it gives them the clarity that they're looking for and and i've tried it the stick feels fantastic it's got great balance to it and it allows you to really like you know to cut through the ice when you're playing at those tempos with that volume you need a tool that really listen only vader can produce that's what's great about this company they really are just great to listen to what the artist needs Jay, it has been a pleasure, man. You have done fantastic. You've voted number one metal drummer in the world by Music Raider, and of course, number one rock drummer in Modern Drummer, the 2020 Reader's Polls. You really have come a long way, and you have produced and continued to play some great music. You're inspiring tons of people, and you're moving forward in the tradition of that great Max Weinberg University. This wow. is really incredible to see what you have done and what you continue to do. For that, I thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Dom. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. Thanks to Vader. Thanks for everybody watching. Everybody, you know, stay safe. We'll be back on stage hopefully sometime soon, and uh, and we'll be able to, you know, sit down, you and me, Dom, hopefully sometime soon. Absolutely. And until uh, then, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Jay, so much. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. You know, it's so great as we have had a visit from Max and Jay Weinberg that these two people are just so dedicated and they persevere, they learn, they study, they are moving this art form forward. And of course, they are both great people. And they'll be back again. We'll try and do a part two with them also. We'll bring them back again at some point in 2021. Don't forget next week, December 21st, Dave DeCenzo. And Dave DeCenzo got a great, great story. His dad owned a great drum shop 
Dick DeCenzo was a beautiful person and a great, great drummer himself and a great drum shop that influenced so many people in the Boston area. Dave carries that torch also, which is absolutely beautiful. December 22nd, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Join us with Dave. We'll talk about his book and everything. We've got so much to discuss. This will be great, great fun. I thank you all. Thank you to the Vader family for allowing me to have this opportunity. Thank you, Chad Brandolini, for organizing this and switching this and making this whole thing happen. It's all about you. Go out there, play music, play drums, stay safe, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.